0: I am Casey Hunt, and this is CNN Tonight, on the eve of what could be the biggest day yet for the January 6th committee, arguably the most significant witness yet, set to appear before congressional investigators. We're going to have much more on that in just a second. But first, we want to show you video just obtained by CNN in another January 6th probe, the federal criminal investigation. We now have body cam video of several agents raiding the home of former Trump DOJ official Jeffrey Clark. He, you may remember, is the environmental lawyer that the ex-president allegedly wanted to install as attorney general because, of course, he seemed willing to help Trump overturn then-president-elect Biden's victory. Other former DOJ officials have testified to that. The footage shows authorities arriving at Clark's doorstep two weeks ago and executing a search warrant on his Virginia home. As you can see here, he answered the door in boxers and a dress shirt, and was asked to wait outside while officers searched the house. The raid was part of the Justice Department's probe into the effort to overturn the 2020 election. It is not clear whether Clark himself is the subject of a criminal investigation. Clark, though, did plead the fifth more than 100 times before the January 6th committee. So there's that. Speaking of the January 6th committee, that brings us back to someone else about to sit down with the panel. Former White House Counsel Pat Cipollone allegedly threatened to resign in an Oval Office meeting that took place on January 3rd, 2021, when Donald Trump threatened to replace his then Attorney General, Jeffrey Rosen, with Clark. Cipollone's name has surfaced over and over and over again in these hearings. He was a critical member of Trump's inner circle. He was present for the most private of conversations. Allegedly, Many of those conversations disturbed him so much in the weeks leading up to January 6th that he almost walked out numerous times. That's something that Trump's son-in-law and former senior advisor Jared Kushner did not deny when he was asked about it by the committee. But, you may recall, he did dismiss Cipollone.
1: I know that, you know, he was always, him and the team were always saying, oh, we're going to
2: resign, we're not going to be here if this happens, if that happens. So, I kind of Took it up to just be whining, to be honest with you.
0: Whining. Okay. And tomorrow, that former White House counsel will be under oath, testifying formally for the first time about Donald Trump in the days before, during, and after January 6th. Unlike Cassidy Hutchinson, the former Mark Meadows aide who testified last week, we're not going to hear this testimony in real time. But it will be recorded and transcribed. that means there's a good chance that the American public will get a look at at least some of his words at some point. Maybe, who knows, even in next week's hearings. Of course, it could be a very different Pat Cipollone than the one that we've seen in public before. You might remember him. He took center stage on Capitol Hill less than a year before the insurrection, when he defended Donald Trump during his first impeachment trial.
3: They're not here to steal one election. They're here to steal two elections. They're here to perpetrate the most massive interference in an election in American history. And we can't allow that to happen.
0: It's very interesting to listen back to that now, although now we know what ultimately did happen on Trump's behalf regarding attempted election interference. Quite a lot has changed since then. So how valuable will Cipollone's testimony be tomorrow? I think we have a sense of that. How credible of a witness will he be? Here's what former Trump acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, told us last night.
4: I know Pat, I worked very closely with Pat for 15 months, actually more than that, uh, when I was in the White House in the West Wing. Um, And Pat will tell the truth, there is no question about it. Uh, Will he corroborate what Casey Hutchinson had said? Uh, Will he counter what she said? I don't know. Uh, But I do know that Pat Cipollone is an honorable guy. And once he puts his hand on that Bible, he will be telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help him, God.
0: All right. I'm joined tonight by a man who probably knows better than anyone what it will be like for Pat Cipollone, former Nixon White House counsel John Dean. Also with us, Jim Schultz, who worked in the White House counsel's office under then President Trump. Uh, Thank you both so much for being with us tonight. Uh, John, I have to start with you. I mean, how does this Pat Cipollone moment compare? to what you went through in 1973.
1: Well, I think it's very different. Uh, I was very inclined to testify. I was actually trying to end a cover-up that was ongoing. Uh, not, it was more than just a bungled burglary that had happened at the Watergate, but rather a, a whole sequence of illicit activity that needed to be explained so you could understand Watergate. Uh, so I was, I was a willing witness. Uh, I had I had been involved in misconduct on my own, and I wanted to end all that and explain what had happened. So Pat Cipollone is coming from a very different place, and I hope he's not coming from the same place uh, you showed in the clip uh, back in October of 2019, when he, I think, was not representing the office of the president, but rather representing the president. And I think if he goes in front of the committee and tells what he knows, he can be a very important witness.
0: Uh, John, uh, let me just stick with you for just one second. I mean, one thing that happened in 1973 was that Nixon waived executive privilege. Uh, how did that impact your testimony? Or, or really, I should say, based on what you know about how that impacted your testimony at the time, how do you think the lack of such a waiver in this case is going to affect what we learned from Pat Cipollone?
1: Well, the the understanding of the representation is much different today. It's clear, uh, it was unclear who my client was at that time. And I had also told uh, the people at the White House that they'd have to go to court to stop me and shut me up, otherwise I was coming forward on both attorney-client and executive privilege because I thought criminal activity would not be shielded by either privilege. So... Uh, My background in that is a little different and where we are today, where I think there is executive privilege is owned by the incumbent president, uh, Joe Biden. And there is some lingering relationship between the former incumbent and his aides. But really, the issue of executive privilege belongs to uh, this president, the sitting president. And I think the courts have pretty well clarified that. And a lot of decisions have already been made about the Trump effort to shield some of his activity through executive privilege. And the the courts are just saying it's not there. Uh, That privilege belongs to Mr. Biden, and he has waived it. So I don't think this is going to be a big issue, uh, nor do I think attorney-client is going to apply here, uh, because that was pretty well knocked down back in the Clinton administration uh, when Ken Starr went after that privilege.
0: So on that point, uh, Jim Schultz, on the, the attorney-client privilege idea here. I mean, you obviously were inside uh, the White House Counsel's office uh, in the West Wing during the Trump administration, and of course, uh, as many of us y- y- lay people who are, who are not lawyers understand it, attorney-client privilege does not apply when you know criminal acts are being undertaken. We've heard a lot of testimony that suggests that Mr. Cipollone repeatedly was advising. president not to do things he wanted to do or said that he wanted to do because he would be committing a crime if he did them. What did you witness while you were in that office along these lines? And how are you thinking about Pat Cipollone's upcoming testimony?
5: So here's what I think about that. I think Pat Cipollone's going to give honest testimony. He's an American hero. He stood, he, protected democracy by standing up against some of the things that were going on there at that time, standing up against the likes of a Jeffrey Clark getting into office. It's very, very important. He's going to tell the truth. I know Pat Cipollone, is going to tell the truth. And, and I think this, was, this is something that was negotiated with the, with the committee. Uh, he was served with a subpoena. It was negotiated with the committee. The scope is going to be, was negotiated with the committee. And he's going to testify truthfully when asked.
0: Jim, what's the number one question you want to see him answer tomorrow?
5: Look, I, I think the the key questions that are going to be asked tomorrow are are ones surrounding one Jeffrey Clark, two the cl- the questions surrounding the the effort to go down to the cap the president's uh, put, you know alleged effort to go down to the Capitol that day by Cassidy Hutchinson. That's I, I would want to verify that if I were on that committee, and that, I think that's something that they're going to ask. And I think anything surrounding this, the episodes leading up, the the planning going up to January sixth, and anything he knows about that, because look. It, John's right. Criminal activity is not protected under attorney-client privilege, which is why I believe Pat Cipollone is coming forward and and talking about these these issues. And look, let's not forget, he did spend five hours with the committee giving interviews. And really what this is, is getting it on the record at this point.
0: Yeah. Uh, John Dean, what do you want to hear from Pat Cipollone? What's your top question for him?
1: Well, he's been in in a catbird seat for a long time, Uh, And if he's going to protect the office of the president, uh, he should testify about what Trump has done uh, in his political activities that may have damaged that office and get that out on the table for this committee to understand in the context of the insurrection where that activity culminated.
0: Uh, John, what is your sense of any knowledge, uh, very briefly, that Pat Cipollone might have in terms of connections to the Proud Boys or Oath Keepers groups. That that seems to be where this committee is also going. That's what we hear they're going to get into next week.
1: Yes, that's that's the Tuesday hearing is purportedly going to focus on that. And I I think Pat Pat Cipollone is a a, a smart guy. And I think he stayed away from people like Roger Stone and uh, General Flynn, who were... uh, boasting these links to the Proud Boys and other extremist groups, uh, but he may know something and he may have some knowledge uh, because there were also pardons requested by some of these people and he may have taken a look into it there. There is no privilege in his review of pardon material that I know of and very uh, I had that point. same function once.
0: <laughs> Indeed you did. John Dean, Jim Schultz, thank you both very much for bringing your knowledge and expertise to bear tonight. There is news tonight about the scheme to install fake GOP electors in key swing states to overturn election 2020. Some Republican operatives are now prepared to work with criminal investigators. How and what it could mean when CNN Tonight returns. New signs tonight that the Justice Department's criminal investigation into January 6th is ramping up. As soon as tomorrow, Republican operatives connected to the fake elector push in battleground states are set to hand over documents to the DOJ. That comes from sources close to the investigation. The operatives who received subpoenas for the documents include two Republican state senators in Arizona, as well as election officials in Georgia, Michigan and Pennsylvania. Federal investigators have also recently targeted two key players in this alleged plot. The FBI seized a phone from the mastermind, Trump attorney John Eastman, last month. And as I mentioned earlier, federal agents did raid the home of former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark. This is the video, newly obtained by CNN, showing that moment from a police body cam, asking him to step outside and refusing his request to get dressed until investigators cleared the house. Here to discuss is former Montana Governor Steve Bullock, who also once served as state attorney general. We are also joined by Scott Jennings and Miles Taylor. Uh, gentlemen, thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, Governor, let me start with you here, if you want to put your your legal hat, on, hat on for TV. a second. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, what do these moves about by the Justice Department tell you about where they are in their investigation?
6: Yeah, no, I think it's significant. Like, first, let's, let's step back. 800... Folks have been charged through January 6th already, 300 have pled, and I think what the department is doing taking a real methodical approach along the way, following the evidence where it comes, and this is another significant step because it's now clearly it's more than just what happened on January 6th in the Capitol. They're looking into the larger pieces of what could be a significant conspiracy.
0: Yeah, they're very clearly putting pieces of a puzzle together. Obviously, January 6th is a key culmination, but the hearings have kind of built up to that. I mean, Miles Taylor, how do, uh, you know, I know you still talk to some people who once worked for Donald Trump, despite having left the party uh, and telling us how it's you really feel. they wouldn't
7: even talk to me, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um,
0: what's the sense in those kinds of quarters about uh, what's happening, DOJ? I mean, are people starting to get scared?
7: They're starting to get scared. And they also see that this thing, Casey, is is like an endless onion or, or a blooming onion. I mean, it just it has more and more layers. I mean, look at how this proceeded. First, it was the fake votes that the president was trying to find to win the election. When he couldn't find the fake votes, then it was let's find fake electors. They couldn't find fake electors. Then it was let's find fake authorities for the vice president of the United States to use to nullify the election. It was this triple fake that's created a whole range of investigative avenues that's making almost everyone that was in the Trump White House or in the administration at the time have the hairs on the backs of their next stand-up because they're worried at some point one of those pieces of the investigation is going to come their direction. And I think what we've seen in the past couple of weeks with the select committee is that if this was a play, we're entering the third act. We're entering the point that it's becoming very dramatic. And you showed footage of the body cams at Jeffrey Clark's house, well, we're at the place where we're going to see the body cams that were in the Oval Office. People like Pat Cipollone, who I know we'll talk about, those were the body, body cameras. cams. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're <laughs> yes. the metaphorical. Well, and if there was, this might all be over now because we would see. But the metaphorical body cams are getting ready to be introduced in these hearings, and I think that's going to be very significant. Scott. Well,
2: I'm glad the Department of Justice is running this down. I mean, if you were involved in trying to literally create fake electors to replace the duly elected electors that are constitutional officers. I mean, these people are part of our United States constitutional system. This is how it works. And if you're trying to subvert that, you deserve to get a visit from the Department of Justice. And I hope these people cooperate and and fess up to it because um, it's wrong. I mean, it it shouldn't be.
0: So, Scott, let me ask you from a political perspective. Okay, so recent polling shows a little bit. Now, granted, this was before Cassidy Hutchison testified, we should note. But it does suggest some of what we've been hearing anecdotally, which is that Republican voters, who, of course, need to make a decision about who to nominate for president in 2024, aren't really paying attention. 10% say they're watching the hearings a lot. 38% say a little. Half of Republicans say, 52%, that they are watching these hearings, not at all. Uh, My question for you, I I guess, is is what is your sense about whether it moves the needle, not necessarily among voters, but among, you know, when I talked to Mick Mulvaney last Mm -hmm. night, he said, look, it's moving the needle among people like Mike Pence and Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo, people that are thinking about challenging him. Uh, somebody would have to step up and challenge him to prevent him from winning the nomination again. Uh, what's your thinking about that?
2: Well, I, I do think these people who are thinking of challenging him are ultimately going to have to make the argument centered around s- some of what we're hearing right now that, look, you know, we all supported Donald Trump. We all voted for him twice. We were all glad for his successes, but we can't Relitigate 2020 in the 2024 election. Mike Pence has obviously already laid down that marker, but these other candidates are going to have to do the same thing. And so this right. whole process that's going on right now gives them the, the ammunition to do that. I'm not surprised, by the way, that a lot of Republicans aren't watching this. I mean, you right. can't put Adam Schiff and Jamie Raskin on a TV show and expect Republicans to watch it. That's what's been the biggest failing of this committee
0: He's is that they put, they
2: put partisan
6: Push action.
0: back on that. Yeah.
6: <laughs> uh, I mean, more than that. Look, I could walk down Last Chance Gulch in Helena, Montana. No one's going to talk to me about these hearings. They're going to talk to me about gas prices, about things that impact their daily lives. Now, we know if there was a seven-part hearing on gas prices, not only would a lot more people watch it, but every cable television (laughs) network would actually cover the damn thing. It might actually contradict
0: you, but continue. So there's a
6: piece to that, though, that it doesn't impact people's everyday lives outside of this place we gather called Washington, D.C. I hope. To Scott's point, that's ultimately, even if voters aren't following this on a daily basis, they're more worried about what's around their kitchen table. I hope it's kind of that awakening to what the Republican Party used to be and more and more folks standing up and saying, look... We can do a lot better than this.
0: I mean, your state, it's voted for Democrats in the past. It's trended red recently. I'm sure you talk regularly with people who vote for those who are not in your Democratic party. I mean, do you think that they are open when you listen to people, that they want someone that's not Donald Trump as their nominee?
6: You know, I think one of the problems or one of the challenges of all of this is we can't even agree what the table looks like right now anymore, meaning that we can talk about these investigations, we can talk about the hearings, but if people don't even believe the commonalities of, boy, it was more than a riot.
0: Yeah. I
6: mean, remember Ted Cruz saying it was a terrorist act until he got his collar pulled.
0: Right. And and Um, Kevin McCarthy. So so I do
6: think at the end of the day, look, some folks will pay attention, but we can't count on these. And these hearings are playing a critical point for both accountability for helping build cases for the Department of Justice. But that's not what's going to move the voters. And and for for history. history.
0: All right, gentlemen, stick with us. We've got a lot more to chat about tonight. We're going to have three of you back later on this hour. Americans, though, woke up this morning to Boris Johnson resigning as the British Prime Minister. This is what it looks like when conservatives in England decided that they are over it. But what would it take for more conservatives in this country to rethink their loyalty to Donald Trump? The author of the new book, Why We Did It, Tim Miller, joins me to discuss. Coming up next. Boris Johnson did survive many scandals. He survived being caught telling lies. He survived a vote of no confidence, and that was just last month. But it all piled up, and in the end, the UK prime minister just couldn't survive without the support of his own party. After more than 50 aides and government officials resigned basically en masse, Johnson says he is stepping down, and he blames, quote, the herd.
8: As we've seen Uh, At Westminster, Uh, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable.
0: (laughs) Sure did move. It's amazing what pressure from one's own party can do to any politician. So obviously it begs the question, what about the conservative herd here in the United States? Will the Republican Party ever say enough is enough with former President Trump? I want to bring in the perfect person to discuss this, Tim Miller. He is a former Republican political operative and the author of the new book, Why We Did It, A Travel Log from the Republican Road to Hell. Uh, Tim, it's always great to see you. Thank you for being here. Um, I want to show everyone a tweet you put up earlier. You wrote, quote, a conservative political party that holds their own head of government accountable for bad deeds. Fascinating. Something worth looking into, GOP. What is behind conservatives abandoning Boris Johnson, but not Trump? So I'm going to make you answer your own question. What's behind it?
3: Well, I think two things. One is uh, the British system of government is different and has, I, I think, provided more opportunities for getting rid of a party leader. Boris isn't the first party leader to get thrown over by by his own government. Uh, it's the nature of a, a parliamentary system. So I think probably something worth reflecting on in, in America. Uh, but that's about our institutions, that is. Uh, But that's not an excuse for the Republicans here, um, because there are mechanisms in the U.S. for Republicans to do exactly what happened in in Britain. I was was just going to say,
0: Tim, because there actually was an opportunity. I mean, you're absolutely right. In this case, it's a group of elites, basically, of elected officials, of leaders who make the decisions, where in the United States, the people make the decisions for president. However, we did have a United States Senate, including a Republican leader at the time who seemed to very much be on the fence and potentially willing to vote to convict Donald Trump, they could have together as a group of elites voted to impeach him and prevented him right in the wake of the riot that ransacked their building that would have prevented him from becoming Republican, uh, from becoming president ever again. And yet they didn't do it.
3: Yeah, this is absolutely right. And the 25th Amendment was also an option before that. Um, You know, January 6th, you know, Trump's own cabinet in the same way the Boris did, could have uh, gotten rid of him. He had already lost the election anyway, Uh, would have just made Mike Pence the head of state. He'd actually shown that he acted responsibly uh, that day. Uh, It was kind of a no brainer. Then the conviction coming in the Senate. Uh, it only would have taken ten more Republican senators, some of whom were retiring, who still didn't vote for it, you know, people who didn't have any political skin in the game. And so I think that is what shows the real difference here. It's that the politicians here, you know, for a variety of reasons that I get into in the book, are so addicted to the access, so addicted to being close to power, that they could not summon the courage to do what what needed to be done. This was not a political uh, uh, thing. People say, oh, well, the politics wouldn't have let it be so. That's not true. Republicans could have moved on to Ron DeSantis or Mike Pence and gotten all the policies that they say they claim to care about uh, and gotten rid of Donald Trump and his corrupt actions. They chose not to do it because they wanted access to power, because they were cowardly, and because the herd, as Boris put it, in America uh, didn't work together uh, and the way that they did in England uh, uh, to, to make sure that, that, that uh, you know, non-corrupt officials were at the head of the party.
0: So I had an interesting conversation last night with Mick Mulvaney, the former acting chief of staff to the White House. And he's arguing basically to Republican voters, hey, listen to the Republicans who are testifying at the January 6th committee. Uh, and he's arguing that it is potentially moving the needle for some of those rivals that you mentioned, the Mike Pence's of the world. Take a look at what Mulvaney had to say.
4: Inside Washington, inside the political world, so outside of Washington, in politics, it is moving the needle. And what you're seeing, I think, is folks, especially in my party, are looking at Donald Trump as as, as damaged. Um, And as well, something that might weigh down the party going into the midterms and into 2024, which is why I think you're starting to hear rumblings now about Mike Pence running in 2024 against Donald Trump, Mike Pompeo, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley. Um, Those were discussions that I don't think you would have had six or eight weeks ago before these commission hearings started.
0: Pretty interesting. Tim, do you buy
5: it?
3: Well, on the one level I kind of bet, we have at the Bulwark we do these focus groups with Trump voters, and there's a podcast called The Focus Group. And it is true that in the last month or so, you've heard more from from Republican voters who like Trump that are thinking, ah, maybe the drama's a little too much, it's time to move on. The problem is we've all been through this before. And in order to kill the monster, you actually have to go at him and put a stake through his heart. And none of the Republicans are willing to do it, I feel like. You know, I'm, I'm going through the same thing I went through in 2016 when we tried to stop Trump with uh, with an anti-Trump uh, conservatives against Trump pact. And, and they won't do it. Mike Pence. Look at Pence. He won't testify to this committee. Mike Pence is the one who could reveal what how, just how derelict Trump was that day. Ron DeSantis says he wants to challenge Trump. But all he does is talk about how great Donald Trump is whenever he's asked. And, and so I'm very, I'm deeply skeptical that the people who are actually in the game, Nick Mulvaney is out of the game now, so he can speak a little bit more freely, but the people who actually are still need voters for power are going to do what it takes to defeat the monster. None of them are willing to do it. Yeah, you saw in the last segment, it's Scott Jennings talking about how, oh, Republican voters aren't watching this because Jamie Raskin isn't doing this. Well, this is because Republican elites aren't giving this committee the, uh, uh, the, the power that it needs to have. It's not being covered in conservative media fairly, uh, despite the fact that Liz Cheney, who's a deep conservative, is the lead prosecutor for it. So I, I'm not seeing a lot of evidence that the elites are changing their views, even though we are seeing a little bit of movement among voters, which is which is encouraging.
0: Yeah, the, the Liz Cheney point's interesting because Mulvaney also, in, in our interview, um, trashed Liz Cheney, quite frankly. Right. Uh, said don't right. listen to her, uh, but do listen to all of the Republicans who are coming forward, uh, people like Cassidy Hutchinson. So I guess time will tell, as always. Tim Miller, thanks very much for your time tonight, sir. I really appreciate having you. Thanks, Jason. All right. Back to the January 6th hearings. How will the select committee try to tie domestic extremism and extremists to Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election when their hearing happens on Tuesday? Predictions around the table when CNN Tonight Returns. saw the people who were part of the mob on January 6th, many of them affiliated with various far right groups, including the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters. Was there any coordination between these extremists and the Trump White House? That is the question that's at the center of next Tuesday's hearing. Remember, Cassidy Hutchinson testified that Donald Trump instructed Mark Meadows to meet with Rudy Giuliani and two of his other key allies, Roger Stone and Michael Flynn on the night before the attack. Both Stone and Flynn are known to have ties with these groups. Mr. Meadows had a conversation with me where he wanted me to work with Secret Service on a movement from the White House to the Bullard Hotel so he could attend the meeting or meetings with Mr. Giuliani and his associates in the war room. I had made it clear to Mr. Meadows that I didn't believe it was a smart idea for him to go to the Willard Hotel that night. Throughout the afternoon, he mentioned a few more times going up to the Willard Hotel that evening and then eventually dropped the subject the night of the 5th and said that he would dial in instead. Steve Bullock, Scott Jennings, Miles Taylor are back with me now. Scott Jennings, I have to go to you on this because the committee has been extraordinarily careful to delineate what the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, these organized extremist groups were doing. They've been separating them out from Trump supporters who were there, who did not plan in advance to do some of the things that we saw these groups try to do. If this connection is made uh, directly or as a matter of perception, what does that mean for Republican leadership? Like, what What does Mitch McConnell need to be saying and doing about this right now?
2: Well, if, if they can prove this link, it's incredibly uh, damaging to the whole, uh, whole idea. You know, there's this pervasive uh, idea on the right that these people were invited in. You know, the, the police let them in and it's just wandering tourists. Yeah, you I know, was wa- there.
0: They were not invited. And,
2: and, uh, and if, if you watch the video, though, and you see these people dressed in paramilitary gear and have repelling equipment and zip, zip ties, tie cuffs. They, they were obviously there for a reason. The core question is, who told them to be there? Who helped them plan it? Is any of those people exist in, in Trump's inner circle? It's the right question to ask, so we'll see what they can prove, but every Republican should condemn links to these groups and uh, pay very close attention to this. I, I'm interested to see what evidence they have, but it, it's, it's apparent that some of these people uh, were not there for spontaneous reasons, that they actually had thought about it in advance.
0: Miles Taylor, I mean, you were inside the Department of Homeland Security for much of the Trump administration. They often dealt with these groups, or did not, uh, depending on the proclivities of the administration. I mean, what do you know? What are your what's your view of, of how this could play out?
7: Anyone who thinks that these people were in Washington on January 6th and it was a fluke is a fool for believing that. There's a thread that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Trump administration that shows this problem with domestic extremism was not a political situation. It was a real public safety threat. And at the beginning of the administration, Trump largely gave a pass to these groups because the people at the White House would say he viewed a lot of these types of organizations as his supporters. We explicitly went to the White House and asked them to develop and issue a domestic terrorism strategy. The answer we got back, we'll do that later. And it was largely because, again, they saw these people as political supporters, not domestic extremists. That went from giving a pass to extremist groups to being permissive towards them when you saw Trump say things like stand back and stand by about these groups, all the way to potentially partnering with them on January 6th. There is a whole line here. Look, today in all 50 states, there are domestic terrorism investigations in this country. Most of them are far-right extremist groups. That was not the case when Donald Trump came into office. Every single state in this country. This isn't just a political issue. I mean, in 2000, when Bush lost the election, his supporters didn't go try to violently overthrow the government and inspire plots to potentially assassinate public figures. That's what we're dealing with now is a very serious public safety threat.
0: Well, and Steve Bullock, I mean, it's out yeah. West, it's particularly problem. Yeah,
6: and to Miles' um, point, not only stand back and stand by, go back the million mega march in December when Stone and Flynn were there, the Proud Boys were there. Look, we've already seen links. When a federal judge uh, looking at a case that has both the Trump, President Trump, his family and the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers say there's enough evidence here to at least let this claim go forward. You had Chairman Thompson saying that, look, we will actually provide evidence of or discussion of the Trump orbit and these groups. So I think that there is a lot more there. I think this will be an interesting piece. And I hope that Scott's right, that this will be a wake-up call for a lot of folks saying, you know, look, we've been on this train for quite a while, but now at
2: least we'll get off.
0: I mean, Scott Chinese, do you think, I mean, it seems like DOJ has to charge if they prove links here.
2: Oh, I I mean... Look, they've already, as Steve pointed out, the governor pointed out a minute ago, I I mean, numbers, hundreds of people have already been charged. So there's obviously a willingness to to move on these folks. And if you broke the law, you deserve to be charged.
0: I'm talking about charging Oh, Oh, you mean... Like, if they can link the White House to these extremist groups, how do they get around
2: charging This question is interesting because, obviously, Joe Biden, who beat Donald Trump, sits at the top of this administration, which ultimately runs the Department of Justice. It's a tricky question. I I hear you. It is a tricky question about whether the administration that just beat the guy should charge the guy with a crime if he intends to run for re-election. I know I I it's unprecedented but let it, me reverse. there's a school of thought here where this takes us down a very weird road.
0: Well, let me reverse this on you for a little bit because I get I get all of the, you know, Republicans want to say that the, you know, this is the Biden Justice Department, they can't charge Trump a Republican president, but as someone who has worked for I mean, I'm going to put you I'm gonna ask you to put your McConnell hat on right now because he is a Republican leader who has publicly So, you know, not insulted Trump, but privately, we all know where he stands. Can't stand him, wants him out of the party. He lost him two Senate seats in Georgia. For Mitch McConnell, what is the best thing the Department of Justice can do here? If they charge Trump, does that keep him in the spotlight? What is, I mean, if you're trying to, if you're a Republican trying to get Trump off the stage, what is the best case?
2: Well, I think if he were sitting here right now, he would say the Department of Justice should follow the law, period. As a political Obviously. matter as a political matter, I will tell you there is a debate within Republican circles about whether if he does get charged, whether it's at the federal level or in any of these state investigations, that it actually martyrs him that it makes it worse in some way that it turns him into you know a persecuted martyr and and it sounds crazy to say but does it rebound and, and I mean, that's make, my and, and make yeah. it worse and no one quite really knows what the political impact of that would be. I do think the culmination of all these investigations and hearings, is that for even some of the people who love voting for Donald Trump, they realize relitigating this and going through this again in 2024 gives the party the least best chance to win back the White House. Sure so even in public, they might say Donald Trump's yeah. great, but in their heart, they know there's got to be a better so, way here.
0: Governor, briefly, from the Democratic side, what's the flip side of this? Because, I mean, you're someone who, you know, ran as a relatively moderate Democrat. I mean, you understand what it takes uh, to run in a state or an environment that's perhaps sure. not terribly progressive or, like, it's tough. Um, Is charging Trump good for the Democratic Party?
6: So I think that, first of all, Department of Justice, and we've already seen seditious conspiracy charges against the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Like, that's definitely the right path to be going down. Any prosecutor would turn around and say, do I have the evidence to actually, the proof to charge the crime? And also, do I want to exercise my discretion? It is a little bit different from a prosecutor in Georgia to the Attorney General of the United States doing this. So yes, I do think we still have to continue to say, what more comes out? But you don't make that decision lightly for both legal reasons and for political reasons.
0: It's a very, very tricky. You know, I mean, threat. if Donald Barack Trump were running for president rudely. and
2: Biden were running for re-election, and his administration was prosecuting the former president and possible future opponent, I, I, I wonder what the political it's an
0: explosive situation. Absolutely, it absolutely is. All right, thank you, Steve Bullock, Scott Jennings, Miles Taylor. This was a great conversation. Come back anytime. The national divide is not all about white nationalists and camouflage looking for trouble. Sometimes the battles are a lot more subtle, and they can come down to a simple four-letter word: woke. W. Camal Bell looks into its surprising impact in the new season of CNN's United Shades of America. He's here with a preview next.
1: You know what woke means? It means you're a loser. Everything woke. Everything woke.
0: It's true. Everything woke turns to shit. Donald Trump made a platform of being anti-woke. What does that mean, exactly? W. Kamau Bell went to the election battleground state of Arizona to ask that question.
8: What is woke?
0: I don't know what that means, so (laughs) I can't answer either way. (laughs) I feel all just like
7: hearing that word, because honestly, I know Did you say I feel old just hearing that no, word?
0: Yes. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I'm only 16, yet I don't really understand like some of the slang terms nowadays.
8: So it's not a word that you're using in your, I mean, I'd be shocked if it was, yeah, but no. it's not a word that you all are using.
0: No, it's a word used against us. It's a word that's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not woke enough to know what non-binary means or what any of that means or to use your pronouns. I identify as a tac helicopter.
1: I use it, its pronouns.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is from the first episode of the new season of United Shades of America, premiering Sunday night right here on CNN. And Kamal Bell joins me now. Uh, sir, thank you so much for being here. I, I want to put the same question to you that, that you put to those kids. Um, what does woke mean? Uh, And how have the culture warriors on the right changed the term?
8: I mean, first of all, I think Donald Trump, when he said things turned to shit, was projecting there. Let me just say that right now. Uh, So I think woke is slang that black people invented, as black people do in this country. We invent slang, and all it means is, like, be educated and be aware. And it's ways that black folks tell each other to pay attention to the world, pay attention to America, because America is a dangerous place for us. That's what it means, full stop. But, like, the best black slang, it is taken by... The mainstream of america and often twisted into something we don't recognize but in this time it's been twisted into something that is harmful and specifically harmful in targeting us in sort of saying that woke is anti-american which is what black people are always in the position of being told our version of america is not the most american version of america and most damagingly they're targeting the schools as a way to stop schools from teaching accurate age-appropriate uh versions of the history of this country
0: yeah, I was going to say, I mean, this, this war really has, uh, this, this version of the culture war really has gone into schools when people talking about critical race theory and some of these uh, other issues. How, how do you think people who oppose that framing, uh, largely Democrats, progressives, however you want to label them, how, what tools do they have to push back?
8: I think we have to start pushing back earlier. I think a lot of times those of us on the left go, that's nonsense, that's not gonna stand, we don't have to worry about that. And what we learn is that the longer we let it fester, even like it's things that sound ridiculous, like the war on Christmas, the more they start to take up shape and we have to start dealing with those is if that's actually where the argument lies and I think that's what's happened with woke and with critical race theory critical race theory has nothing to do with what your kid learns in elementary school if your kid is learning critical race theory in elementary school congratulations your kid is a genius because that is for law schools and graduate level schools so but it's we don't take that stuff seriously because we do I think frame it as a culture war and really that's where a lot of the wars in this country happen is in the culture
0: So I will say, I do talk to some Democrats on Capitol Hill, or I have, uh, who would probably describe themselves as more moderate members of the party, who think that some of the language goes too far. What do you argue to to those people, to people who, policy-wise, are on the side of many people who would call themselves woke, uh, but who think it's potentially alienating? What, What do you say to them? How should they be approaching it?
8: Congratulations, you sound old. That's what I would say to them. The culture shifts, language changes, and those of us, and I'm also in that old category, have to understand that as the language change, it's your turn to sort of go, oh, this is new, I should learn about it. Or you go, no, that's not the way it was when I was coming up, so I have to stay in my place. So for me, I sit here wearing this shirt that says trans people belong. That is a place I came to. I was not born that way. I didn't grow up around trans people, but I've been educated by loving people around me who explained to me that trans people belong, and that's why I wear shirts like this. So this is about, can you accept new ideas in your head? Can you process them? And can you then take those new ideas and share them with the world?
0: I was going to say, I mean, you described the way you initially described woke as something that was, you know, adopted uh, by black Americans, but it's it's come to be something that many other communities have identified with.
8: Yeah, I mean, you know, let's be clear. Black people often in the American language are the culture engine of the American language. So, yes, there are ways to talk about woke that is positive. I mean, the phrase stay woke took off during 2014 in the wake of uh, Michael Brown's killing by the police in Ferguson, by police officer in Ferguson. There's nothing wrong with taking these phrases and using them as long as you're using them the way they were meant to be used. But, they're, but often, as happens with black culture, it gets weaponized against us eventually.
0: All right, Kamal, thank you very much uh, for this conversation. Uh, I'm sure the episode's going to be fascinating. Do be sure to tune in. The all new season of United Shades of America with W. Kamal Bell premieres Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern, only right here on CNN. Thank you all for joining us tonight. I'll be back tomorrow night. I hope to see you. Don Lemon tonight with Laura Coates sitting in Don Starts right now.